Well, good morning, Bethel Church. Uh, this has been a pretty good summer so far. Uh, I'm speaking particularly about the uh, allergens. Uh, I'm doing okay this year. Last year, I wanted to die. You know, I think we had uh, birch pollen was something like 7,000 last year and broke records. This year, I've only seen as high as like 600, and I like it. So I'm thankful for that. I'm still recognizing that it's getting to my voice here, so hopefully that uh, holds up for the whole sermon. Um, but anyways, if you would take out your bulletins, a couple announcements. Um, number one, there is kind of a bookmark-like uh, deal in there. And uh, this is just a tool to kind of let you know of the different ways that you can um, direct your giving uh, to the church. Uh, we kind of we stopped taking um, offering with the plates uh, and um, have a couple of different ways that we collect offering now. We want to make you aware of those, especially as summer comes on. Because if you're like me, you're going to go fishing uh, a lot this summer, I hope. And uh, you're going to do other things. And it's easy when you're traveling to get out of the discipline or the habit of giving. And so we want to make sure that um, uh, we can support you with that. And then uh, secondly, if you would take that tear-off strip, fill that out for us, please. We'd like you to do that every week, whether you're uh, new or a snowbird or you're here every single week. Uh, please fill it out. Let us know that you're here. Tell us what's going on in your life so we can be praying for you. If you have questions, uh, that's a great tool for you to communicate with us. And what, where we want you to put those is on your, in the back on your way out uh, by the double doors, there are these black uh, boxes and you can put your offering in there. You can put uh, those uh, tear-off strips in there. So if you would just get in the habit of doing that every week, um, that helps us just stay connected to you. So uh, with that, let's pray and then we'll dive into our passage together. So Father, we thank you that you are a God who is worthy to be worshiped, that you are not small or trite, or shameful, or embarrassing in any way. You are glorious. You are luminous. Your nature is astounding. And as we encounter you in the revelation of your word, Lord, we are in awe. And I pray that we would not lose that sense of awe, Lord, but that we would be um, reverential as we come before you as you are. Lord, this is uh, your word. It is about you and it is about what you're doing uh, in us and through this world. So we pray, Lord, that we would be shaped and formed by it, that we would love you more for seeing what is here in your word. So guide our study, please. Direct our hearts to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So if you want to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, uh, we're continuing on in our series, The Real World. And... Um, we're going to be in chapter 1, starting at verse 12 today. Now, I don't want the next couple of things that I tell you, I don't want to come across snobby or brainy or big-headed or anything like this. But when I was in sixth grade, I won second place in a science fair. Oh, yeah. Small schools, Southern California division, second place. There was more than two, but not many. No, there was quite a few, actually. But I won second place. And um, so, yeah, I, I peaked a little early in life, you know. Um, <laughs> my dad and I made a wind tunnel. And uh, I was trying to demonstrate laminar airflow with this wind tunnel. And um, I'll admit I was a little bit surprised to get second place, especially because of the kid who was next to me. Because he also had a wind tunnel. But his looked like his dad was an aeronautical engineer. 
it was impressive. He had like this NASA-shaped background kind of thing. You know, I had a little PVC pipe, and there was a section cut out of it where we took a two-liter bottle, you know, stuck that in there, carved a couple wings out of balsa wood, put those in there, had a little dry ice chamber that, that brought the, the fog up, and then we drew it down the, the shaft with a, a hair dryer. And we learned that we couldn't blow air in. We had to blow air out. Otherwise, it would heat up the fog too much and wouldn't work. Anyways, I'm telling you all about my science experiment. <laughs> but that's what mine looked like. And it had this ratty background on, on uh, just cardboard. And I had like this gold foil on it. It was not good. And then the kid next to me, like I said, his was amazing. And he had this, he had like this plexiglass tube. He had a little machine that was making smoke and blowing it all at one time. And in his, he actually had a wing in there, and when the wind hit it, it would lift up. He could show lift. I was showing laminar airflow, but he could make the thing move. And I thought, this is not going to go well. One of us is going home. But when they came over to ask him to explain it, and they said, tell us what's happening here, he says, I don't know. This was dad's science experiment. And so I got second place. I was a little surprised to uh, find one of the other uh, finalists. Uh, I, I was surprised that he was a finalist because he disproved his own hypothesis with this experiment. And I thought, you disproved it. How, you know, how could that be a winner of any kind? What I didn't quite realize at the time was that disproving a hypothesis is as valuable as proving one in sort of the scientific inquiry and the process of discovery. And today... We go with Solomon into the laboratory of life. And we look uh, with him as he sets out to conduct what I'm calling a series of unfortunate experiments. Uh, and what he is doing is he is trying to examine life under the sun. And again, this isn't life without God. This is not the atheist's life. It's just life on the human plane. Life on earth. Life as we find it here on this third rock from the sun. And so that's what he's doing. And he is systematically evaluating various pursuits of life uh, against this question in chapter 1, verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? What do they gain? And so he's looking at this. And several different pursuits will be disproven in sort of his laboratory of experiments here. But again, disproving something is as valuable to the process of inquiry as proving it. So let's look together. Chapter 1, verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are hebel. A chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. 
So we might say experiment number one, hypothesis number one, wisdom is supreme. Let's assert that and let's try that. Let's test that and let's see what we get here. Now, before we get into that, I'll just say, I think uh, verse 12 just about clinches the fact that Solomon uh, is the author of Ecclesiastes. Of course, it's debated. But there's a couple different data points here. We saw early on that this is one who is a son of, a son of David. And, um, and we see here uh, also that, that Solomon or, or the author claims to have been king in Israel in Jerusalem. But right after uh, Solomon, uh, the, the nation divided, right? Then you have northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And it, Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom of Judah, not Israel. So when he says this is a son of David, but also that he ruled in Jerusalem over Israel, that kind of brackets it right down. And it sure seems like it would have to be Solomon here. And the author's point in telling us this is not so much to identify himself, but to show us his credentials. He has some credentials to conduct this kind of an experiment. And so the first is that he's a, a king, and the second, that he is a teacher. King, he has the authority. He has the resources to pursue this particular quest. He doesn't have to apply for funding. He doesn't need a grant. If he wants to do it, he's going to do it, and he, can fund, and he can fund it himself. And then as a teacher, he can gather people together, and he can instruct and lay out what he has learned. So... With that in mind, it seems like, well, wisdom, that's a, that's a great starting point. Wisdom is supreme. It makes all the sense in the world, especially from Solomon's life, because as soon as he succeeded his father David as king, uh, we're told that the Lord came to him and offered him something. It says this in 1 Kings 3, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give to you. Think about that for a moment. If God came to you and said, what do you want me to give to you? The right answer, of course, is I would like more wishes, please. Unlimited wishes. <laughs> we almost expect to find that. But no. Solomon, I mean, it's really quite a, a touching moment between he and the Lord. And he's moved by the fact that here he is to be a leader and a shepherd over God's people. And so rather than asking for more wishes like I would... He asks for wisdom and discernment that he might govern God's people well. Uh, we're told that God was so pleased with this request that he gave to him uh, wisdom, but also riches, honor, and a long life. So it seems like Solomon's sort of experimentation, starting out with wisdom, uh, good plan. He scored points with the Lord before with that, so let's start with wisdom again, right? But surprisingly, wisdom doesn't seem to give him the answers he's looking for. Instead of bringing him a profit in life, it simply brings him a greater awareness of burdens in life. It doesn't produce the profit he's hoping for. Now, on one level, I find this kind of confusing because elsewhere in the book of Proverbs in chapter 8, uh, verse 35, we find a proverb here that is attributed to Solomon where he extols the virtue of wisdom. In fact, he says this, for those who find me, it's speaking of wisdom there, those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. 
And so how are we to reconcile this? In 1 Kings, Solomon gets wisdom from the Lord. In Proverbs, he extols the virtues of it and implores us to chase it and to pursue it and get it ourselves because it's valuable. And then in Ecclesiastes, he says, wisdom is hebel, vaporous, fleeting, like chasing after the wind. So which is it? I think what we find here is this, that wisdom will guide us through life, but it's not going to gain us a prophet. Remember this, this word that he keeps asking about, yatron, what is the gain? What does a man gain? What is the leftover? What's the profit? It doesn't produce that. Now, I'm a big fan of, um, of wisdom literature in the scriptures, and we find uh, sort of the books that contribute to that are Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Psalms, and, and Job would be thrown in there as well. But they kind of have a unique relationship to one another. You might say that they almost speak with kind of multiple voices or, or from different altitudes, if you will. Ecclesiastes is the philosophical voice. It, it looks at life from 30,000 feet up. What, what's happening down here? And then Proverbs is sort of uh, the practical voice. It's kind of the street level. How do you get from here to there the best way? It's like the Google Maps, right? How do we do this? Street view. And then Psalms, we might say, is sort of the compassionate voice. It's sort of like, how do we cope with life when it didn't go the ecclesiastical or proverbial way? How do we turn to God? And what do we say to him? And how do we relate to him? I was sharing this kind of multiple um, elevation view uh, with my predecessor, Paul Holmes. And he added this, interjected this. He said, yeah, and Job is a book written from the altitude of six feet underground. <laughs> Which I thought that was a good observation. But Solomon's experiment with wisdom basically concludes, even wisdom is hebel. It's vaporous. It's fleeting. Um, now, on the, again, on the one hand, I find this a little confusing or frustrating, but also... If we stop and think about it, it kind of resonates with me a little bit too. Um, I'm not a king, I'm not a particularly wise person, uh, but I'm a leader, I'm a pastor. And I know that one of the things that is so difficult for me in my particular role, in my job, is what I know. There is a burden to what you know, as he says here, for with much wisdom, comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. And what I mean by that is, I am blessed and honored to be in your lives, to listen to you, to hear about when life doesn't go right, to know about the pains and the struggles, to hear your confessions. And, and as a pastor, you learn all of these things and you're, you're privileged and honored to hear them, but you sort of bear with people in that. And that's heavy. And some of you, some of you folks know this. Um, sometimes people will say that uh, a doctor or um, a counselor is a similar profession to a pastor. And I always go, no, it's not. Very different. Uh, I'm not dissing them at all. It's just they see clients or patients. We see family. And so I'm just trying to relate to this. I, I understand what he's saying here. With much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. The more you know 
it's, it's hard, it's painful. You, you carry that. And so he's basically saying here, wisdom doesn't produce gain, it produces pain because you know stuff. There's a funny old um, episode of Seinfeld. I don't know if you like Seinfeld reruns or whatever, but I do. There's a funny one where Kramer is looking at uh, the top of a pop can one day and he realizes the redemption value of this can is 10 cents if you can get it into Michigan. And so the wheels start turning. You got to figure out how are we going to get all these cans loaded up and hustle them over to Michigan for the big score. And of course, he's conspiring with Newman and Newman's like, no, I tried that years ago. It can't be done. And what they realize is in all of their calculations, you end up spending all of that money that you might make in the gas and the rental fees and it just can't be done. You end up just churning up all of your profits. And honestly, that's kind of the picture of life that Solomon presents here, Chebel. You're not gonna get ahead. You're not gonna amass something. You're not gonna gather it up to yourself and have this great profit to show. We're just gonna churn through some of these things, even with wisdom at your side. If your goal is to master life by gain, by control, by gripping life and bending it to your will and to your way, you will be continually disappointed. Life is Chabel. Ian Proven, who is an Old Testament scholar at Regent College in Vancouver, he says this, Wisdom is useful as an instrument for understanding the world, yet what it mainly helps one to understand is just how impossible it is to control and profit from the world as it has been created. Wisdom shows us the limits of wisdom, if you will. Okay, so then we have this big pendulum swing here. We have experiment number one, wisdom is supreme. But then he kind of swings to the other side. It's like, well, you know, if wisdom doesn't guarantee uh, a good return in life, then why bother? Why bother? Why not just throw caution to the wind? Why not gratify every appetite without feeling any pangs of remorse? Carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Hedonism, let's go. And so experiment number two is pleasure. Well, pleasure is supreme. Let's try that one out. Chapter two, verse one. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. 
Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was Hebel, chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now, what's initially identified here as pleasure, we might say has a few different variations, and I'm going to tease out three of them here. You could probably do more, but uh, the first one, we would say amusement. Variation one, test the profits of amusement. What is this worth? We might simply call this partying. Laughter, alcohol, bodily pleasures. And while not any one of these things is inherently bad by themselves, the unbridled pursuit of them has a natural progression, it sounds like this, from enjoyment to indulgence to addiction to desperation. When I read this um, passage this week and I was thinking about sort of the amusement and the folly and all that, um, two guys came to mind. Uh, Robin Williams, you guys remember Robin Williams? And Chris Farley, two of the funniest guys in my lifetime, hilarious, seem to always be having a fun time, living it up, and guess what? Both of these comedians died at their own hands or in desperation and overdose. That's what characterized their death. You would look at them and think, how could that possibly be? These are guys that see the funniest things in life. You would think they would just be walking around laughing all the time in deep pain, in deep sorrow. I think Solomon's test of amusement here turns out to reveal what we might call the paradox of hedonism. The paradox of hedonism, which is something like this. The more you pursue pleasure, the less you find it. If pleasure in and of itself is your pursuit, the more elusive it becomes. And this is the ugly truth known to every addict. What starts as a beverage becomes a binge. What starts as a flirtation becomes an affair. What starts off as just something risque grows into full-on pornography. What starts off as just a joint becomes a needle. There is a slow and steady progression downward, a downward spiral when we pursue pleasure for itself. And it's ironic because typically people will do this in the name of freedom, and in the name of freedom, they become enslaved. My own family has, has struggled with this. I've shared this with you, my extended family back in the Midwest. Uh, numerous addicts whom we loved and tried to walk with out of these things. And in the end, they died a very sad and ugly death. In the name of freedom, they pursued him, but they became enslaved and they took him down. The paradox of hedonism. So chasing amusement, Chabel. Chabel. The second variation. Well, let's test projects as profitable. You know, you can almost imagine here sort of a tired, hungover, half-dressed king filled with shame and a raging headache looking out the palace window, right? Well, that, that didn't pay off again. Sort of forced to contemplate his own unhappiness and after a whole other night of excesses 
And yet now he wakes up to start a new day. The hole that he's been trying to fill is even deeper than before. And finally, he'll admit, this is Habel. So sort of seeing the hopelessness of amusement, he turns to something more substantial, something more enduring, more beautiful, creations, projects. Let's build something, right? Let's build something together. Isn't that Lowe's slogan? No, let's build something together. I was there yesterday. There's a reason that people jokingly call it slows. I'll be calling it slows from now on. I was supposed to pick up a grill. They were assembling it. It's going to be 20 minutes. Three hours. Three hours. I was waiting. Let's not get diverted by that. <laughs> Nothing good's happening there. So you can imagine this king, okay, this is empty, but now let's build something more substantial. What could this be? So homes for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens, parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. And I think it's interesting. It actually seems like he taps into something here. Some of the only positive remarks in the whole section, it seems like he finds something of a little bit of value at the second part of verse 10, right? He says, I denied myself, nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart, no pleasure. My heart took delight in what? In all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. I think he stumbles into something here that has some benefit. Some benefit. And we'll, we'll kind of develop this as we go. But I think what he's, he's seeing here is that he's seeing something of what it means to be human. I believe that God has made us to be workers. In fact, I would say I think there's a common lie going on out there that work is the result of the fall. It's part of the curse. And that's wrong. Frustrated work, work by the sweat of your brow, that's the result of the fall and of the curse. But one of God's original gifts to mankind was good, wholesome work. He gave him good work. I'd call it the original gift. Um, we're going to do old 80s TV shows here. This is like a category in Jeopardy. I'll take old 80s TV shows for 200, Alex. Do you remember the old show, The A-Team? How many of you? Come on, I want to see some. Yes. Mr. T, Hannibal, Murdoch, Face. I heard it whispered. Thank you. These are our guys. It's a pretty lame show most of the time. But there was a part in the show when it got great. Do you remember this? You'd be watching it. Something silly would be happening. But then they needed to create something. They needed to make something. And they would have this little video montage with the music going in the background. And you didn't want to miss that part. You wanted to see what they were making, what they were creating. And that's, that captivated you. Let me give you another example. MacGyver. Remember this one? We have MacGyver fans here. There were more MacGyver fans first service than A-Team fans. So it says something about the services here. MacGyver, you get in some scrape and you have a watch and a toothpick and a stick of chewing gum. And he'd build a microwave somehow, you know, and somehow that would get him out of his scrape. But watching him sort of figure this out and create and make, that was the real fun part. I'll give you one more example. Uh, this old house. Watched it this week. Uh, I love watching that. But when you get to the end and they do the final wrap-up party or whatever, you know, some person gets the wicker chair out and sets it down and grabs the lemonade and sits down. And you think, this isn't any good. 
It was fun when they were building the house, when they were repairing and making. That process was fun. The final process, eh. And I think kind of what we find in some of this just human nature is, is it's in the building, the creating, the making, the imagining. This is something that God has made us to do. We're makers as he is. I think there's some, that's why that's very satisfying. I'll, I'll, I'll even give this a name. I'll call it Lego theology. Because you did the same thing with Legos when you were a kid. You, you're going to build something and you spilled the Legos out and you started assembling all the bricks. And that was the fun part. And when you finished it and you had a galactic rocket ship that you made out of these Lego bricks, the fun was over, right? Who wants to play with it? The fun part was the making. I think Solomon stumbles into something here. My heart took delight in my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. Can't take it with him. There's no profit. But it did produce something enjoyable in life. And what we're actually talking about here. Uh, is really a theology of work. And we're going we're gonna to develop it sort of much later as we move on in this series overall. But he looks at the end projects, the orchards, the buildings, the houses, reservoirs. It's like the galactic rocket ship. The finished project wasn't all that fun. It was the building. So it's almost like record that in the lab notes, please. Then we get to variation three, test possessions. Let's, try, let's say that possessions are valuable, and let's chase that down. Verse 7. I bought male and female slaves, and I had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. There's a lot we can talk about there. I was curious about his, um, his gold portfolio. So I did a little research here. Went to First Kings to kind of look at this. And here's what we're told there. 666 talents per year, which is the equivalent of 23 metric tons. One metric ton has 32,666 troy ounces of gold at today's prices of roughly $1,900, 1.4 billion annually gold portfolio. That's Jeff Bezos kind of money, right? This is one wealthy guy. First Kings 11 also tells us the sad uh, statistic of Solomon's harem 300 concubines in addition to 700 wives. To that, I would say, no wonder the man was unhappy. I can't think there was one of them that liked him very much. C.S. Lewis said it this way, we're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased. We're chasing the lesser things and ignoring the greater things. Bernard of Clairvaux said it this way, from the best bliss the world imparts, we turn again unfilled to thee. So a round of experiments is sort of completed here. Wisdom has been tested 
pleasure in three different variations has been tested. And there's a bit of a discovery here. And it sounds something like this. Wisdom is better than folly. But neither one of them is going to wring a profit out of life. It's not going to net you anything at the end. Verse 12. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. And all the Alaskans said, amen. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And so here, and there's probably a better scientific term for this than what I have, but here we run into sort of the unavoidable constant. At every experiment, there is this constant where he hits the wall. And that is this, that death is the great equalizer. Solomon's greatest problem in all of his search is death. It's the constant. David Gibson has said it this way, death stalks both the wise and the foolish. Verse 15, then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is Hebel. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. The death is like this wave. It's like the wave at the beach that comes and takes all the sandcastles. It doesn't pick and choose. It doesn't leave the big ones or the small ones or the clumsy ones or the intricate ones. That wave comes in, it takes them all. And death will do the same with us. I've told you before about, um, there's this graveyard in Boston. And I'm not one who, you know, frequents graveyards, okay? But there's this pretty cool one there. It's called the Granary uh, Burial Ground. It's near Boston Common. And it's the burial site for a lot of very famous Americans. Sam Adams, John Hancock, Paul Revere, and several members of Ben Franklin's family. And the funny thing about it is, is on these tombstones, there are some hilarious little pictures of skeletons. And they've got goofy looks on their face, goofy expressions. But then there is this Latin phrase that frequently appears under it, which is memento mori which says, remember death. Or essentially, remember, you will die. It's the dead's last sermon to the living. You're here looking at my grave. You're going to be here too. Chabel. You're not going to take something out of this life. You're not going to have a net or a profit at the end of it. Isn't this encouraging? <laughs> But here is part of the purpose of Ecclesiastes. It's not to satisfy us. It's to make us thirsty. It's to create a longing. It's to make us have an appetite and want what God truly has to give. For we hear these things and we think, and so what? What do we do? But then Jesus comes along and he conquers death, the great equalizer. And he shows mankind how to be human as he was human. 
And he imparts to us life in the here and now and life that spills over into eternity. Ecclesiastes makes us thirsty and it's Jesus who satisfies, amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the laboratory that Solomon takes us into. Life tested, life being experimented with. May we learn from his lessons and not make our own mistakes. May we see those things in life which um, are good and satisfying. And may we know that we're not gonna wring a profit out of this life. But may we rejoice in Jesus who comes for us, who comes to redeem us and to take us back to be with him and to be like him. For he gives life that is truly life and we rejoice in that. We pray in his name, amen.